Well, the thinking obviously is what's important, but in the end, we're there for them, them being the kids. And so my life, I mean, I don't want it to be difficult, but it's not about making my life easy. It's about making the students' lives rich. What I've You're listening to, to our friend sort of and mentor, the great Marion Small. For us, Marion's been a rock and a foundation for how we've changed our teaching practice. She taught pre-service teachers for years in New Brunswick, Canada. She's an author of numerous professional development books on math teaching and education. And she's the guru on differentiation and open questions in the math classroom. In this discussion, we talk with Marion about the origin story of open questions how open questions compare to open middle problems, and how being more intentional with big ideas versus specific skills is more beneficial for student learning. She fills us in on how her current passion project, Math Up, teaches teachers how to think about math lessons as well as giving you resources for those lessons. Stay with us for this jam-packed episode with Marion. Hit it! Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are two math teachers who, together, with you, the community of educators worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement, fuel learning, and ignite teacher action. Welcome to episode number 16, How to Create Authentic Conversations in Math Class, an interview with Marion Small. We don't want to waste any more of your time, so stick that phone in your car's cup holder. Here's Marion Small. Hello, welcome to the call, Marion. How are you doing this evening? I am great. Awesome, awesome. We are so excited to have you on the podcast with us tonight. We're wondering, for those who are listening, I know that many, many people would know all about your work, but tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your math teaching story, your math education story? What got you into down the road of math PD a specialist? Okay. Well, we won't say how many years it is because that would be (laughs) embarrassing, but we will say that a long time ago, I started a degree in mathematics and started a graduate degree in mathematics and decided I was more interested in education than just being a pure mathematician and so got into teaching as well. So I taught while I was doing a graduate degree and I taught for a few years in Vancouver. And then I, before too long, became a professor of both math and math education at the University of New Brunswick and then moved to just education and taught there both pre-service elementary and pre-service secondary teachers for a very long time and eventually left the university and now kind of independently work with lots of folks around Canada and other parts of the world. Awesome. 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 I know uh, we've had the opportunity through many conferences, not only uh, NCTM, but also a little closer to home for us, the OAME conference. And actually, I believe you're chairing this year's conference. Is that true? I believe that is true. At least it feels (laughs) like it's true. And I will urge anybody who's out there to come. We're pretty excited. We have accepted all of our speakers now. So we're just putting together the program. We're looking forward to lots of folks coming to the beautiful city of Ottawa in May when it actually is beautiful and enjoying our conference. 
Beautiful. Awesome. Yes. And that's the actual, the May 2-4 weekend. So people can stay and enjoy the weather and get out in the open. So uh, yeah, we are, John and I are both going to be there and we are very excited as we always are. OAME is, you know, John and I speak very highly of that conference because that's where we both had sort of our, our math teaching epiphanies mm-hmm. and you had a big role in that. Uh, well, it's for, interesting. For it's, it's really one of the better math conferences because I attend lots of different ones in the U.S. as well. And this is really one of the great ones. And so I think we should be proud in Ontario that we've been able to put this together. Yeah, I definitely agree to that. I started going to OAME maybe in 2008 or 9, and I had a chance to go to NCTM in Philadelphia. I think it was 2011, and I was pretty excited. You know, I was like, oh, this is going to be so many amazing things here to see. And when I got there, and it was a pretty good conference, it's huge. And after leaving there, I kind of said to myself, I said, I don't think there's anything here that I didn't see at OAME or or we're not getting at OAME conference. Like, I always love going to that because I think we pass a lot of value into that one conference just for our, our province. I completely agree. Yeah, fabulous, fabulous. I'm going to do a little shameless plug here for 2022 OAME here in Windsor in uh, John oh, wow. and uh, my backyard. Yeah, so David Petro is going to be heading that up and uh, John and I will definitely be helping along with that. So we're very excited to bring it back to the very, very deep south of Ontario. I'm pretty excited that you guys chose to have the date around the May 2-4 weekend. And just like what Kyle said, people can stay for the holiday, explore Ottawa. We're going to be up there anyway, so I'm pretty excited to do that. Well, Ottawa did a conference a few years ago before I actually moved here. And they did do it on the long weekend. And it worked that people brought their families and their families enjoyed Parliament and the Tula Festival and all the great stuff while they learned a little math. And then they join them. <laughs> right. For sure. Right. Mary, our next question here is something that we've asked every one of our guests so far. And it's something that Kyle and I always often talk about. What is your most memorable moment from math class? This could be you as a student. What pops into your mind as a student? Like what stands out for you that uh, rings bells or sticks with you for a long time? Or it could also be as a teacher, but one big moment that kind of pops in your mind when we say math class. Well, it's funny because I was recently interviewed for the OAMA Gazette. And so I'm repeating something because it happened fairly recently, but A long time ago when I was in high school, and it was a long time ago, I did have a string of amazing math teachers. That is for sure why I'm in math. But there was one in particular who I remember, and why I remember him is that we students were all much smarter than he was, but he was an amazing teacher. And what I still remember is being 15 years old and him naming a theorem after me in a class because I had thought of something that he didn't know about. And it's kind of scary to me that I still remember what happened that long ago, but that clearly tells me what an impact a teacher has in those personal relationships, not just knowing the stuff they teach. I know when we ask that question, when we're doing live workshops, oftentimes a lot of people don't have those same memories, sadly, from their K through 12 experience anyway. And I know, I know that everyone definitely has those teachers that are near and dear to their hearts, just like John and I do. But for many people, they tend to have those maybe more negative memories pop into their mind. So I really respect the fact that, you know, your memory is a positive one to keep us thinking positively and, and building that productive disposition towards math class. 
Well, it's important for us to help teachers know what a little thing like that could mean to a person who can remember it so many years later. And you have to just keep that in your head all the time because you have the capacity to do that for a kid. For sure. I know when I get a student that once in a while I see, you know, bump into one in town or out and about, you know, it could be five years later and they tell you it's just something simple that, you know, like I really enjoyed your class. Like that's all it has to be, but that just makes you feel so good. And the reality is if one student says that every now and again, just imagine how many others are thinking. And I know as teachers, you know, we're so hard on ourselves sometimes. Sometimes. So I think that message is really important. Marion, one of the reasons we I was most excited to have you on the show was mostly because of the huge amount of work you've done in math education, but also the direct impact your work on open questions had on me. I remember seeing you, I think one of my math consultants many, many years ago brought you to our district in Lampton Kent District School Board for a full day workshop. And it was the first time I saw you talk about open questions and the impact that has on high school math. And that had a direct impact on me because I took what you talked about and those strategies back to my classroom for my grade nine applied math class, revamped what I was doing. You know, I was teaching very traditionally. I got a set of whiteboards and I started implementing open questions on a regular basis. And it's one of the very first things that changed my direction as a teacher. And, And, you know, I've done a lot of things since then, but that was one of the very first things that had a huge impact on me. And I'm so grateful that you're here to talk to us. But Do you mind explaining... For anyone who's listening who doesn't know what we're talking about, but like, what is an open question? And also maybe like, what's the origin story of that? Or like, how did you start down that path to really kind of put these on the map? I'll tell you a couple things. One is just a conversation I had with, I'm just going to say a famous US math educator. I won't say who it is. And we were having breakfast. And this guy who's younger than I am asked me if I thought I'd had impact on people. And I said, yeah, I think so. And I think I told him that I thought I had a whole province called Ontario, who pretty much (laughs) all know what open questions are. So I thought maybe, yeah. And so what was interesting is when I was a professor, I had a graduate student who was doing a thesis with me and we were close. And one day she said to me, you ask such great questions. Like, how do you do that? And then I started thinking about what I did instead of just doing it. And that started me on the path about what do you do that makes these questions so attractive to her and what is it that you're doing? And it suddenly occurred to me that essentially I was asking questions that were what I'm going to call not convergent, but much more divergent. And people could take them different ways and go in different directions with them. And what I heard from them was way more of them than them just repeating me. And I think that's what kind of led to open questions, which are extremely divergent. An open question just means that it has a lot of different directions in which someone could take it that all makes sense. And frequently, those kinds of open questions are particularly valuable for both including a student who might be struggling because they can take it a fairly simple way, but also extending students who are very strong because often we don't extend them at all because they could take it a much more sophisticated way. So it turned into differentiating instruction. And if I go down to the States, that's what they think I am is about differentiating instructions. And it partly is. But what I love about open questions the most is that it always leads to what I'm going to call authentic, rich conversations in math. And it also always leads to different voice 
and different people really going in different directions, which I find attractive. I'm wondering if someone's listening and they're going, oh, wow, this sounds what is an open question? Really, yeah. interview, really interesting. <laughs> I, no, I think, I think you did an amazing job uh, explaining the difference there. So I'm wondering, could you give us an, maybe an example of maybe a more divergent question versus- Absolutely. Would be more so what I'm going to do is, because is, this I find helps teachers a lot. I'm going to start with a simple question and just turn it into a more divergent question. So if, for example, I'm doing an algebra topic right now in my writing, so I have algebra in my brain. So I'll say, suppose you were going to ask a kid to solve an equation, and I'm not even going to think it through, 3x plus 4 equals 5. Let's just say something simple like that. A teacher would look at that question and say to himself, herself, how do I open that up? And they could notice that the numbers 3, 4, and 5 were consecutive. So instead of saying solve 3x plus 4 equals 5, they could say pick three consecutive numbers, put one before the x, one after the plus, and one on the right-hand side, solve your equation. Beauty. Mm. And it's that easy. It's that easy. And if a kid decides to use zero as one of their consecutive numbers, that's legal. (laughs) And yep. <laughs> it might even make the equation easy or, or impossible, you know. And so it leads to really great conversations because there'll be what will be in common with everybody's solutions would never happen if everybody were solving the same equation. Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here. And I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision-makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? Setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. Do you feel like there is some sort of synergy between, I know that one of the newer websites that are out is called Open Middle, which kind of tends to follow kind of a similar idea and maybe might even be a younger brother to the open question, to the Marion open question. I actually don't think it's the same thing. And I'll tell you why. I think that in the US, the US and Canada are different. You have to know that. So in Canada, our curriculum for very many years in every province in this country have encouraged teachers to encourage diverse strategies, different ways of people doing things and so on. And that's really what open middle says, do things your own way. In the U.S., where that sort of emanated, that isn't what people did. They were much more into, there's a way to do things. We're all going to do it that way. So for them, open middle was quite a departure because it allowed kids to do things different ways. I think in our country, we were doing this a long time ago, and we still weren't always getting to the places we want. So in honesty, I'm just going to say for me, it's not enough. Do you feel, I'm curious here off the cuff wondering, 
especially here. And I'll speak more namely to Ontario, since that's where we have most experience, John and I anyway. Do you think that there's the fact that we do have kind of more of an inquiry or that stance, like you had said, that strategies and really strategic competence is something that's really important. And we know that through research. But what do you think holds us back? And I group all of us in as educators that why we sometimes miss the mark in certain areas. Okay, well, I think there's a few things. One thing that you might find interesting is I was in Boston at a school a couple months ago, and one of the people who had invited me was saying how when she's a blogger and she follows lots of math blogs, and she says the people she loves are Canadians and people from California. And I think (laughs) what she was saying was that we have adopted that stance a long time ago and that she can recognize it in the kind of work that she sees that we talk about. And it's not only Ontario, but it's significantly Ontario. I do think that, and it depends what grades you're talking about, but one of the things that I believe is really important is you can't just teach through problem solving or teach in an inquiry way. You have to be focused and you have to be fully aware of what ideas you want kids to walk away with. Not what skills you want them to do, but what ideas you want them to walk away with. And as a teacher, if you're not fully clear on that, it's probably not going to come out in your lesson. And I think that's what we missed. So when teachers are more what I these days call intentional and understand this is the idea I want to come out when I'm teaching this lesson or dealing with this outcome or expectation, I actually think we won't miss the mark. I think what's been missing is our, I'm going to call it muddle, about what we're trying to achieve when it's not just a particular skill. Actually, Marion, it's funny because I'm scrolling down. We have a series of you know little ideas we had for yeah. this conversation. <laughs> and I actually pulled a tweet that you had shared on Twitter from November 2nd. Okay. And it sounds very similar to what you just highlighted. And in particular, it said, there is no curriculum standard or outcome that does not require consideration of what ideas you want to come out of that instruction, not just what things kids will do. Try it with a colleague. And I grabbed it because it resonated with me immediately that oftentimes when we do have this openness that you've described, sometimes people forget about that intentional piece. And I know for the vast majority of my career, and I think John would agree, we were trying, we were trying our darndest, but boy, oh boy, did we miss the mark many times because we were teaching a standard and we were not actually thinking about like, what specifically are we looking, like, what are we hoping to see our students be able to do at the end? Like, what are we trying to get at that big idea? I had a really great experience last summer that I was telling another bunch of teachers about. I worked in a school, it was in Ottawa, and we spent three days in July, believe it or not, a bunch of teachers with me going through, it happened to be a French school, but going through the French math curriculum for a bunch of grades and saying, let's look at every single expectation, which they call continue, and say, what ideas do we want kids to walk away with? Let's write them all down. And as we teach, that's the focus of your lesson. Like, that's what they walk away with today. That's what they walk away with today. And it doesn't matter whether you use open-ended questions or 
closed questions, you still have to be intentional. And what's ironic to me, but works great for me, is that by being open-ended, I can actually be more focused because I ask a question that happens to be open-ended, but it's to get at a particular idea. And my focus in discussing the work of the kids is not so much on what their answers were, but on those ideas. I've definitely morphed, you know, my teaching into more of that and doing more listening and observing than definitely like any sort of uh, direct instruction. Like I always want to listen first and then see where I can interject myself if needed. Um, Sure, sure. So we know you have at least 10 books or more specifically on open questions, or even some of them are titled good questions. So we got to ask, like, how many books have you authored or co-authored? Can you speak a little bit about that? Well, it's a big number. (laughs) So it's over 100. Some of them with others. My goodness gracious. (laughs) Some of them are with others. So I worked on a number of textbook series, and usually those have lots of grades. So some of them are a series of books in which I was one of a number of authors, and it was like one for each grade. So do you see that can get big fast? I've probably written 25 or so books on my own, and mostly in the last bunch of years. And right now I'm working on four. And it really works for me because I've been doing this a long time and I figured it all out from my perspective. And so it's easy for me to articulate you know, what I think in these things. And uh, so I just finished one. um, I'm just seeing the proofs now on assessment and feedback, like what matters in assessment and what kind of feedback should you give kids? And that's for grades three to eight. And then I'm working on a K to eight thing. And then I'm working on, you know, so there's a lot of stuff going on, but I've done a lot on my own, but I've done a lot collaboratively as well. Wow. I I knew it was a big number, but I did not realize, you know, the, <laughs> yeah, the magnitude <laughs> of that number. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, and it's interesting because my next question I was going to have was around some of your most recent work or what I thought was your most recent work, but it sounds like you have a yeah, couple books going more, yeah, at the same right, time. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, congratulations. Like, good for you that you're able to have your mind working in so many different things. I mean, really what I think it says, it just speaks to how you live and breathe math education. So I I mean, that's just fantastic. So I'm wondering your most, at least the project that I'm most aware of is Math Up. And it's not a book, but more of a PD tool. Do you mind uh, helping uh, learn a little bit about that? Absolutely. So the idea initiated maybe five or six years ago, and it took a while to actually make it happen. But what I've been able to do is sort of to take all of my experiences to say, based on all these experiences I've had, I feel that I would like to write something that helps teachers meet the needs they have, not just like cover curriculum. And what I want to do in here is model for teachers what it's like to think about teaching math and what kinds of questions you ask and how you do things and not so much give them a lesson for every day, but model enough lessons that they can see how it works so that they can then find their own voice and become their own person with these kinds of ideas in mind. So it is a digital resource. It's written for grades K to eight. Right now, one to eight is written. K is still on the way. And it turns out that every Ontario expectation happens to be covered in a lesson. But lessons are provided, but it's not just the lessons. It's telling teachers, why did I make this decision? And why did I make that decision? So because it's digital, I have videos that allow me to talk to teachers. And there's also kind of uh, 
you know, more textual things that are still on screen that tell teachers why I made decisions. And I learned a long time ago that I knew why I did all the stuff I did, but the user didn't necessarily know. And that's what I needed to do to empower the teacher. So that came through experiences I've had with teachers who didn't know why I did this or that or the other thing. So that's the thing I'm truly most excited about, that I'm trying to show you how you think through all this stuff, not just give you stuff to mechanically follow. So it was great for me. And it's been interesting. I've had lots of conversations with lots of people. And I was talking to a superintendent in one school board, and she was asking me how this particular thing differed from, and she just mentioned some other digital product. And what I was explaining is that I wasn't trying to give it to you so you didn't have to do anything. I was trying to give it to you to make you think harder than you think now. So I'll give you this stuff to help you get through something, but I'm really going to force you in the way I'm doing it to reflect on how you behave as a math teacher. Are you emphasizing the right things with kids? Are you asking them the right kinds of questions? Are you bringing out the most important ideas? And was to really kind of be almost in your classroom with you, talking you through all this, not just saying, here it is, you don't have to do anything anymore. Right. And I think so often that's how many look at digital tools. And I was going to ask you, or at least articulate, because I know I have been in there, there is a wonderful amount of information and it's organized so nicely. But in particular, something that I thought was great is I've heard teachers that have used other tools, other digital tools before. And I find what tends to happen is you sort of have like, you have this sort of, you know, pre 21st century thinking or the textbook. It's yeah. like, here's this, yeah. this yeah. old textbook and that's, that's it. Yeah. And then if you go to a digital tool, it's kind of like the exact opposite. Like there's nothing on paper and it's like, everything's locked in there. And what I noticed about your tool is that you still had printable resources that teachers could access and use. And I mean, it's great to have it as a digital tool, but some people like to hit that print button and have it in their hands so they can, you know, sit on the couch and read and just kind of be able to go through the material in, in that form. No, it's not was like that, that done intentionally? Or? <laughs> yes, it was very intentional. So the publishers did an amazing job of bringing what I had in mind to life. So it wasn't really all me. You know, the idea of it was that this really is meant to be professional learning. This is a way, if I'm not in a session with you, for you to be with me to hear how I would think something through. So there is so much discussion about how you think about this and that and whatever. And you can't just put that all on paper. It has to be video for part of it or whatever it is. Like it's not really meant print this off and sit down. You are with the kids all the time, but you are also thinking on your feet about what you're doing all the time too. It's just that it was my job. Like I walk in classrooms with teachers and they say, oh, I never would have thought of asking that. Oh, I never would have thought of asking that. So I'm just helping them by showing them what it could look like like in certain instances. And then if they kind of learn what it looks like, then, you know, hopefully they don't ever need me anymore. Yeah, it's kind of feeling like worksheets or any sort of printable resources, like off limits now for the classroom. And I, you know, what I really like is it's this idea that a rich task is only as rich as we make it, right? And that comes back to the intentionality that you'd mentioned yep. earlier. And the fact that, you know, like you said, you're giving them the support. And something that I really admire is the fact that without being at least somewhat 
making it look like sound like what maybe a teacher is doing currently and maybe without as much intention. Now you're able to kind of bridge that gap a little bit and really help them, like you said, I think do more thinking, which I know sounds kind of funny because a lot of people would say, wait, wait a second, don't I want this to be quote unquote easier? And I think the thinking is what makes our life as math educators so much easier and the students' lives so much easier. So that thinking is just so important. I think it's great how you've enabled the teacher to be able to do that thinking. Well, the thinking obviously is what's important, but in the end, we're there for them, them being the kids. And so my life I mean, I don't want it to be difficult, but it's not about making my life easy. It's about making the students' lives rich. Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like, I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple months, maybe even a couple years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, Do us this huge solid. Uh, We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. I'm wondering right now, what is next on your to-do list? Like, what's coming up? Like, what, Other I'm, than I'm imagining... three books coming out. Yeah, well, it's that's funny. True. It's funny because yeah. um, one of the books that I've done in Canada that's been sort of around for a while is called Making Math Meaningful for Canadian Students. And a lot of uh, university students use it in methods classes and, and new teachers often get it and so on. Anyway, it's been in Canada, but not in the U.S. So right now, actually, Stenhouse is Americanizing it. And so I'm a little bit helping them do that. So that's one of the projects I have going on. And it's funny because Math Up really in some ways does everything I ever wanted, which is why I love it so much. It's allowed me to do all the things that I believe in kind of all in one place. But I guess I still have other stuff I can say because I was able to do some other books at the same time. So maybe I still do. It was interesting for me because I wrote my first textbook when I was pretty young. And it was a long time ago, probably even before you guys were teaching, it was called Interactions. And it was very out there at the time. And we did well, but people dropped it like hot potatoes after a while because it was, it kind of would have worked now, but it was very ahead of its time back then. And so it's been kind of interesting that the two most exciting projects I've ever worked on were kind of my first and then this one too. So in a way, it's hard to do something after it. Yeah, actually, you know what? It's funny because I have run into more than a few teachers in my own district and there were some schools that had, uh, had interaction. It's interaction. Sorry. Yes, it is. Yeah. And they were saying like back then, like they had no idea, like, you know what I mean? They were just so, it was like you said, ahead of its time. And now a few teachers have pulled it out and they're like, (laughs) I kept it. And they look at it and they go, what the heck was I thinking? Like, this is exactly what I need, you know? So I I mean, I think think it just speaks to it. And then secondly, uh, about making math meaningful, I had an opportunity to teach uh, an additional qualifications course through the uh, University of Windsor. And we had used making math meaningful as well. And I'll tell you, that book sits on my desk at the office. I'll tell you, (laughs) it's just so great because it hits pedagogy. It also hits, you know, just like, just philosophy about math teaching, but then also digs into the content as well and has very, very specific sections. So I think like that book just has so much greatness in it. I can't believe that it's not 
already in the U.S. So folks listening from the U.S., it's definitely one to watch out for when it does come on to the show. Yeah, well, it's been, so Tracy Zager is the one who's actually working on some of the editing with Stenhouse, and she's been tweeting about it lately. So I think our American friends will know soon. Oh, awesome. Great. Awesome. Tracy's nice. great. Nice. She's great. I'm really curious. What are you leaning towards to like talk about next or specifically about math? education. I actually think this bit about intentionality is extremely important. So probably where I'm going next is really to kind of do more with that. So in many sessions that I've had with teachers or school districts, I'm sitting with teachers and we're kind of, I'm going to call it deconstructing the expectations and saying, if I'm doing this, what do I want to get out of it? What kind of questions would I ask to get out of it? What kind of assessments would I give kids to see if they got it and all that kind of stuff? And I really feel that, and I've actually, I told this to the ministry, this was a year and a half ago, so it was a different ministry. But at the time we were talking about the curriculum review, which is still being reviewed, I think. And one of the things I said, and I still believe strongly, is that the ministry or a government in whatever province or state has a responsibility when they share a curriculum with teachers to give them more than bare bones and to say, like, do this. I think they have a responsibility because they have the resources to do it, to at least share with them a little bit more about, and these are the ideas you want to bring out. And these are the kinds of, it doesn't even have to be about resources, but at least the ideas you want to bring out. And this is why you want to do it and whatever it is. So I feel it is incumbent on many of us in math education to work with teachers whose responsibility legally is to teach the curriculum to better understand the curriculum. And I think better understanding isn't just words. Absolutely. And I got a little bit of a chill there when you said it, because I feel like even in Ontario, and I know that there are, I've been doing a lot of work recently in K through eight. In my current role, we have uh, much more focus on math PD at that level. And my current understanding, when I look at the K, well, the grade one through eight curriculum in Ontario, what I see is, I mean, there's definitely areas that I would definitely love to see, you know, modified change. There's even a few things that come out in a kind of a conceptually backwards way. Like, for example, where students are using money notation or with the dollar sign and cents all in one expression, but yet they haven't been introduced to decimals yet until grade four. Like there's some kind of quirky things there, but for the most part, when you go through that curriculum, they've done a great job. If you know, like if Marion Small's reading the curriculum, you would probably be like, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And there's a lot of that concreteness fading sort of idea going on, you know, and iteratively coming back to the forefront. And the reality is, I think now that we are looking at a potential curriculum review, teachers are finally starting to clue in and go, whoa, wait a second. I think I know, I think I can do this. And yet we're changing the curriculum based on, you know, standardized test scores and so forth. But yet many teachers weren't actually given that little bit of guidance like you've articulated in order for them to understand what was intended when that curriculum was written and what sort of outcomes we were hoping to see. Right. And I think that when teachers read, I've talked to them all the time. So when they read an expectation and I say, so what does that mean to you? Like you get 10 different answers. So we haven't figured out what these things mean and we haven't kind of done insight into them. So I'll take an expectation. There's one in grade seven about factors and I'll say, okay, so here we have to do this factor stuff. I know we need kids to be able to factor. So that goes without saying that's what it says. But inside of factoring, what do you want them to know about factors? And that let's make a list. And like teachers 
aren't doing that. And that's the critical work. Because if you can make a list of what you want them to learn about factors, then you know what lessons to teach. Then you know what activities to give. Then you know everything. But if you just say to yourself, oh, we got a factor, you have no clue what to do. Right. And it tends to be more procedural in nature as well, right? It's sort of like, yep, let's get that done the quickest way possible. Boom, there it is. And then, you know, there's no conceptual piece there. Or even if they found a cute problem that dealt with factoring, they still don't know how to draw the factoring part out of it. So it's whether you're kind of right wing, left wing, you still have to think about what do I need them to walk with? What is deep inside all this factoring stuff? And it's weird because I'll take that factoring thing and it'll take me like seven slides to say everything I want them to know about factoring. And they're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Like, oh yeah. So I know teachers can do it. They just haven't been put in that sort of mindset that that's what we should do. Right. And, you know, I can totally relate. I have a story that always reminds me about, you know, knowing the curriculum and knowing it inside and out and knowing all these questions that we're talking about right now. And it was a few years ago, I had, you know, being a high school teacher, sometimes we have to teach a different class than we normally teach. And I've probably taught high school, you know, I, well, I have taught high school since I started math only. And my principal came to me and said, uh, I need you to teach an accounting section. And, uh, and I don't know any accounting. So, and so I'm, you know, I'm in the situation where I don't know the curriculum at all. I'm learning it on the fly. And I totally understood parts of like, I was at a position in my math class where I had already been teaching with curious problems and we're diving into good questioning. And, you know, I have this math program that I'm in love with and I know so well and, and all the activities that go with it. But come accounting class, I was stuck. I'm like, I can't teach this class the way I really want to teach this class yet. And I was almost forced to just go look at the curriculum standards and then do it procedurally, like Kyle just said. I had some guidance and I wish I had some more understanding of what the curriculum meant or how it, you know, all weaved together. But I'm trying to do so many amazing things in my classroom. And it's been 10 years of me teaching the curriculum that allowed me to do that. And and there's teachers out there trying to come out of teacher's college thinking they can do all this stuff right away and and getting overwhelmed. And, And I was just you know, relating to them in that situation. I mean, experience does wonders for us and we learn lots through it. I've taught teachers at teacher's college and then they come out and they just adapt to the culture anyway. Usually they get a horrible load. So if you're a young high school teacher, they give you four of courses that nobody else wants to do and they're all different. And like these kids can barely cope with one. So we don't actually organizationally make it easy for those people to become good teachers. And some of them persevere and do and others, you know, find it much more difficult. But I really think that it's helping people see that's why I feel it's the, the ministry's responsibility to give teachers more than just a bunch of words. For sure. We had James Tanton on and his episode actually just released this week as we're recording this. And, you know, he articulated the same thing that if all we're asking kids are just what questions and we're just looking for these answers, we're, we're not getting at the beauty of mathematics, that joyous part of mathematics. Like we're just kind of rushing to numbers, rushing to checking check boxes. And, and really we're robbing the students of that experience. So uh, I'm definitely with you. We've got to make sure that we're helping teachers along the way, because I know that I didn't have that coming out of my own K through 12 experience. And I know I didn't feel very prepared coming out of my pre-service simply because of, you know, the number of hours that, you know, you even focus on math and I was in the math program. And yet I came out and just thought to myself, you know, I had that 
mixed bag, like you said, of all kinds of courses that people didn't want and curriculum changes in a few others. And I remember those first few years was me basically from seven in the morning until seven at night. Then I'd come home and eat a little bit and then carry on for the rest of the evening. And and that was just to try to tread water. Like I look back at that and just think, wow, I have no idea what was going on in my classroom at that time. I was just trying to make sure everyone was alive at the end of the day. And, you know, if we can focus on helping those newer teachers and helping people better understand what it is we're trying to do, then I think we'll be heading in the right direction. We don't want to take up to too much of your time. Uh, if you could give one tip to teachers going out who are listening to this, just one, I know there's so many, what might that tip be for them to go off and explore? What advice would I give to teachers? I think the most important thing to say to any teacher is that until you show your kids you love what you do, they're not going to love what you do either. Thank you so much, Marion, for joining us on this episode of the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. We appreciate you and all that you do for math teachers and helping our students. Cal, what was your biggest takeaway from this episode? Although there are so many takeaways we could pull from this conversation, I can't help but love Marion's advice she gives teachers at the very end of our conversation, where she says, until you show your kids you love what you do, they're not going to love what you do either. And that to me is so important because it's so easy for us to get lost in planning, marking, classroom management, and all the other distractions. We can easily forget to show how interested and excited we are to have the privilege to teach mathematics in a K through 12 classroom each and every day. How about you, John? What resonated with you? Similar to yours, my big takeaway can be summed up when she was talking about teachers it's not about making my life easy. It's about making the student's experience rich. You know, so many teachers are looking for that quick fix in their classroom. And our profession is not about quick fixes. It's way too complicated, way too important for even a quick fix to exist. We have to do the work. Like we have to do hard work here to make it meaningful for our students. And if we do that work, it's more meaningful for us too as teachers. It wasn't until I made changes that I felt happy and excited to go to work every day. It's not about making our lives easy. It's about making math moments that matter for our students. That's awesome, John. Thanks for sharing. In order to ensure you don't miss out on new episodes as they come out each week, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or by simply searching on that platform. Also, you can use some of these quick links. For iTunes, go to makemathmoments.com forward slash iTunes. For Google Play, go to makemathmoments.com forward slash play. For Spotify, go to makemathmoments.com forward slash Spotify. And quick links will work for most other popular podcasting platforms as well. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, please share this podcast with a colleague and help us reach a wider audience by leaving us a review on iTunes. It really does help the show make it to new teachers' ears. So take a minute right now and hit the write a review button and leave us your five-star review. Every single one makes our day. Show notes and links for resources from this episode can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 16. Again, that is makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 16. You can also find Make Math Moments on all social media platforms and seek out our free private Facebook group, Math Moment Makers K through 12. Well, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And high fives for you. Oh, <laughs> my
if you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, an accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle, walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook after completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.